Welcome to Telegeography Explains the Internet, the show that explores the business behind all the ways humans stay connected around the world. I'm your host, Greg Bryan, and in this bonus episode, we're letting you listen in on a live event I did in August at a meeting of the Ohio Network User Group at the fabulous BrewDog Hotel and Brewery in Columbus, Ohio. If you're not familiar with the Network User Association, you should go check out their website at usnua.com. And as you will see there in their words, the USNUA is a national association whose members are professional network engineers that can't wait to unbox that new router. Our members are industry luminaries who know where the technology is headed and where it's been, lovers of all things networking. So uh, this group has state-based chapters who each run their own events a few times a year, and I have now been to a couple and really enjoyed connecting with the folks in the organization. They agreed to let me do a live version of my talk all about how enterprise WANs are changing and what the implications of those changes are for network costs. Now, just a word of warning on the quality here. We could not figure out our ideal recording setup in time at the event and ended up just recording it with an open air digital recorder. But that does have the benefit of making it feel like you're at a real live event um, with various noises and whatnot in the background. But giving a listen through and, and we could certainly make out what was going on. I had lots of questions from the audience and uh, knowing that the recording was going to be like this, I tried to make sure that I repeated all of those questions into the mic, even if you can't hear them on the recording. So it's definitely still worth a listen. The whole event was very educational and fun for me. And if you have a chapter of the USNUA in your state, I highly recommend checking it out. Or if you don't, contact them about starting one. So thanks very much in this episode to Jason Ginter, to Chris Kane, Kayla Anthony, and Jason Valor from uh, the Network User Association, and everyone else there for having me. And I look forward to getting to go to more events. All right, enjoy. Uh, Telegeography is a boutique market research firm totally focused on the global telecom market. So everything that we look at is the infrastructure or the cost of global telecom services. So that's like submarine cables, um, networks, um, uh, data centers around the world, wide area networks, which is mostly what I'm going to talk about tonight, and that's my focus on telegeography. Um, so with that, we're going to talk about shifting WAN strategies and the impact on network costs. So the idea here is to look at what folks have been doing with their WAN and how those changes that we've seen over the past few years have impacted how much WANs should cost. So that's the general story. So how do I do that general story? Well, um, we run a telegeography, something called the WAN Manager Survey, which I'll, I'll tell you lots more about. So uh, in our roadmap here, I'll, I'll be brief about it. Um, and we also track pricing for various telecom services around the world. So we're going to sort of bring together the trends that we've seen with how WANs are being engineered and architected and um, the, the uh, sort of configurations of them, along with the trends that we've seen pricing and then to do that, um, we'll put together some pricing scenarios. So one of the things we do at Telegeography is we benchmark large multinational networks. And uh, sort of through that activity, I created a, a state network to test various ideas about how these changes that we're seeing in how folks are putting together their WANs impact the cost of the WANs. So that's the general idea. Let's first start talking about the WAN manager survey. Okay, so um, the upshot of this is that uh, we used to do a conference series called the WAN Summit, which we brought together the folks who sell uh, WAN services and uh, large multinational companies that, that buy um, networks. And, um, and through that, we sort of created this panel of people um, that I could ask a bunch of questions to and see what is up with their WAN. Uh, we started that actually back in 2013 when things weren't as interesting as they got over the next few years, so we'll talk a lot about that. But basically, what the survey is, it's a 20-minute survey of um, what your network configuration 
configuration looks like, where you're sourcing it, um, what technologies you've adopted, that kind of thing. Um, the, this particular survey that we'll be talking about tonight, I conducted in with my colleagues in, in quarter three and four of 2022. Um, so, you know, this is getting to be uh, almost a year old, basically. Uh, so keep that in mind when you're hearing these trends. Um, and we had 62 respondents last year, usually somewhere between 60 and 75 for most years. Um, and then we do follow-up interviews where um, we'll ask people more detailed questions to kind of put all of these survey questions that we put uh, to them in a sort of online format into uh, greater context in the interview. And of course, being a survey, we're asking for maybe 20 to, uh, to 20 minutes to an hour of your time. We'll give you a free telegraphy wall map. If you don't know telegraphy, one of the things that people know us for most around the world is that we make maps of global infrastructure like submarine cables and stuff like that. If you go to submarinecablemap.com, that, that is made by my colleagues. So if you want a free map, this is my only little plug. I, I, I made sure to check with Chris that this is not selling too much, but if you're someone who can answer the kind of questions that you'll see me asking here, um, I would love to have your, your input into our survey uh, next year. I'll, I'll start running it actually in a few weeks. So um, that's that's my little plug. But um, So most of our respondents come from large multinationals, and basically the reason for that is because um, for a, a non-telecom company to aware of telegraphy what we do, usually it takes for them to have a, a large network that, that spans at least a, a few regions. Um, the median employee count, just to give you a feel for the kinds of enterprises that we're talking about, was 29,000, but there's a large range, actually. It goes down to very small um, to, to very large, hundreds of thousands of employees. 90% uh, of the respondents um, had about a billion uh, dollars in revenue, and the median was about 10 billion. Just again, to give you an idea of, of the, the scale of the kind of networks that we're talking about. Most of them, as you might imagine, um, had headquarters in the US and Canada or Western Europe. Um, then we had some from East Asia and Australia. But we're talking about, again, networks that have sites all around the world, so we get a, a feel for how that uh, all plays out across basically all the, the world's major business centers, right? Um, and then this just gives you a picture, and, and I'm happy to share these slides if anybody wants more detail. It's gonna be really hard to see some of the details on these slides, but um, but basically we have a, a huge amount of verticals represented. We are heavy on finance and healthcare for various reasons. They're very concerned about their networks, and um, uh, just a little bit of history. We, we did the conference series that I was talking about where I initially built this panel up, in New York, London, uh, Frankfurt, and Singapore, so it's kind of uh, oriented towards the, the finance companies for some of those reasons. Um, but we also have, you know, all kinds of uh, verticals like oil and gas and mining that, that might have more remote sites and whatnot to give us a, a big picture of kind of what different network uh, geographies might impact uh, what their plans actually look like. So the first part, as I was saying, we're going to tell the story of like lands have changed a lot in the past few years, and then get to how that impacts the cost of them. But the first big takeaway from that is something that should, I would think, be not very surprising at all, which is that MPLS, as the core of the land, is on the decline. Uh, when we first ran this survey in 2018, 82% of, of sites on the average network across all of our respondents were running MPLS. By 2022, that was down to 15%. But what's really interesting here is that decline has actually slowed over the past couple of years. Um, I think that has a lot to do just with uh, the COVID impact and, and that sort of thing, where uh, rollouts of, of other technologies like SD-WAN, which we'll talk more about, of course, um, slowed down just because of the general slowdown in, in availability of, of chips, for example, right? Chip again and that sort of thing. Um, but also that I think um, a lot of folks had this idea that like, oh, we need to dump MQLS, it's expensive, and then pull back on that a little bit. I still think it will continue to decline. Um, I actually do a forecast of this as well. And, you know, we have it, we have it sort of um, not going away entirely, but, but certainly continuing to, to diminish. And during that same time, uh, DIA usage has been increasing. Um, Rockband actually declined in our survey, which I think is really interesting. I think there was a big push um, to move towards business broadband, um, but then when folks tried that out, sometimes it didn't work out quite as well as they hoped. 
that depends a lot on your geography, your network geography, right? Do you have access to um, really reliable broadband? If you're talking about a global kind of situation, and broadband um, as opposed to DIA with, with carrier level uh, SLAs and things like that could be um, a, a, an interesting proposition. Yes, please. You asked specifically about cellular agents. That is a great question. We uh, so the question was, do we ask about cellular? And we do, and I have a slide on that. And we'll, we'll see you in a minute. So thank you. And I should say, since we did that, please do interrupt me at any time. It would be great to have lots of questions and clarifications. Okay, so this is about bandwidth demand. So the upshot of this chart is that bandwidth demand is pretty uneven across these three core underlay products, which is to say, MPLS ports sizes skew much lower than DIA or even broadband, which is interesting. Um, so when you're below 50 megs or so, um, uh, MPLS is much more demanded. Uh, when you get uh, at above 50 megs, um, you're more likely to be using DIA. This has certainly to do with cost and some other factors, like what are you using the DIA for, what kind of workloads, what kind of traffic. Um, and, uh, you know, when you get to the sort of gigi and above level, it is definitely much more likely to be DIA. Broadband falls off a lot there because there's just not a lot of broadband, especially when you get out of North America, Western Europe, not a lot of broadband available those very high speeds. Um, but really, the, the, the key takeaway here is that um, there is a, a big difference in the size of MPLS ports versus the size of, of DIA or broadband circuits. And the demand for that um, has been changing as well. So bandwidth demand has been increasing. Okay, so uh, that's for obvious reasons, right? Just there's always the need for, for more and more traffic. We saw really an acceleration of this, I think, after um, folks went back to the office after COVID. What do you do, right? Not everybody's in the office at the same time, so we, anytime you have a meeting now that might have been in person in 2019, it involves people on Zoom or, or Teams or Meet or whatever, right? So I think even office bandwidth demand has gone up even more than, than we would have expected. And you see that in this chart. What you see here is that the demand for um, for MPLS ports, right, um, at the 11 to 50 megabits per second, is the only one below 50 megs there that, that went up. So as folks are shifting towards a more kind of internet hybrid approach, you might lower your MPLS port sizes. Everything else below that 50 meg kind of level, uh, the demand went down, and the demand for larger DIA and broadband ports, of course, went up. And the, the biggest in demand uh, in this period from 2018 to 2022 was for DIA ports. So to your question here, this is a snapshot of all of the various underlay services uh, that we tracked in the survey in 2022. MPLS is still the most uh, used network product that we found on average across all the networks that we have, but DIA is very close behind. Broadband there, um, pretty far behind where the MPLS and DIA kind of levels are. We asked about point-to-point -point services, which we'll talk a little bit more about. We asked about wireless. You see wireless, under 10% of sites on average. Now, um, again, remember that this is an average across all of our respondents. There might be some networks that have wireless at most sites and a bunch of networks that don't have any wireless. Um, but when we follow up on that in our interviews, we find that wireless for now tends to be a sort of connectivity of last resort. Um, I'll give you an example. We, we had a, a retail that you guys would know, right, that, um, that operates uh, globally. Um, and, and they said they use wireless when they're in a mall that has contracts with a particular cable provider, say, or a particular broadband provider, and they can't get any sort of secondary line to run SD-WAN over that, they'll go to, to fix wireless access. Um, or, you know, of course, you'll have situations where you have more remote sites and you need wireless. I think that we expect that wireless number definitely to go up over the next few years as, as 5G fixed wireless access plans become more available. Um, and a lot of providers are, are coming out with a kind of um, broadband-like plan for fixed wireless access. I think that is the key sort of killer app for, for wireless in, in that sense is that you need a, a, um, a service that you can consume, not like a mobile service, but more like a wireline service in terms of the, the bandwidth and the uh, usage and that sort of thing. 
Notice the satellite we have on there is it was literally like three percent, right, of, of sites on average had satellite. Again, that's one that I'll want to watch over the next few years because um, there are all these, you know, Starlink and Kuiper, and there's a, a startup called Nirvana, if you've ever heard of that, that are trying to make LEO, uh, low Earth orbit satellite, um, uh, more enterprise consumable, right? So I think if that, if that happens and, and all of that goes according to plan, really, one thing you know, I'm sure uh, you guys, if you're talking to lay people who don't know anything about networking, they think the internet works largely in satellites. It's like less than 5% of the global internet, right? Um, uh, because it's really expensive to send uh, things up in the atmosphere, right? And then they run into things, and they, they have a shelf life. Fiber has a shelf life of like 25 years, and even that could be extended, and that sort of thing. So um, satellite has a, a ways to go to catch up with that in terms of cost. Um, but there are a lot of applications where the cost of satellite is now coming down to the point where the cost of digging a trench for 500 miles, right, um, would be would be higher, right? So I expect that, that satellite number two to definitely be going up in the next few years if we get some of the wheels online. Okay, so we, we asked about point to point and we saw that it was it was there, but it's, it's not a super prominent uh, WAN kind of product right now. For those who did have it, we asked them what they were using it for, right? And most of it is just between data centers. So we've encountered a lot more enterprises that are kind of building their own data center and data center backbone by wavelengths. Why do they do this? Because it's cheap, right? So you can you can get a, a 10 gigabit wavelength for uh, a lot less than you could get a, a uh, giddy MPLS port, for example, right? Um, but we did even have a few respondents that have um, their own kind of like telco-like networks. So these are enterprises, not in the telecom business, but they've built up their own little sort of telco-like networks where they, they have point-to-point -point service that's often wavelengths, maybe uh, Ethernet over MPLS, that kind of technology, where they are connecting their offices to their data centers, offices to other offices. Now, uh, that, that is a strategy that works really well for those who can do it. It does require a lot of knowledge of the telecom business and, and that sort of thing. So it has, um, you know, an application that's, that's probably an unusual setup, but uh, you see it out there, which I find really interesting. Okay, so who are uh, enterprises buying these services from? So we ask that separately for different products because the trends are very different by these different underlay products, right? So, what's interesting about MPLS sourcing in particular is that uh, when we started asking these questions in 2020, who do you get your MPLS service from? It was a lot of kind of single global providers. So, uh, even back in 2020, it was very likely that if you have a large multinational network, you're going to go with an AT&T, Verizon, Orange, BT, that kind of provider and just get it all done because you have one MPLS network. As SD-WAN has come along, that has changed that sourcing strategy where we see a fall from about 45% going with a single global provider for MPLS to only 27%. And what has grown in the meantime, that, that red bar there, is a mix of global and regional providers. So one of the things, many things, that SD-WAN does in terms of your underlay sourcing is gives you that opportunity to maybe pick best in breed network for a particular region that you're in, rather than going to that one-stop shop kind of global provider, and, um, and sort of mix up your sourcing that way where you don't have to have a single network provider to make your, your WAN sort of cohesively work in that sense. So we've seen regional providers both as, as a mix with global and uh, as just going to single regional providers um, really grow over that same time that SQL global provider has shrunk. And we also ask about the actual particular providers that people are using. Of course, they might be using, as you saw in the last slide, many different providers. So this is going to total way more than 100%, just to understand the slide. Um, so we still do see about a quarter of respondents that are using AT&T, right? So the, the telephone company is still on top in that sense, and, and you see very sort of uh, normal players on top there, AT&T, VT, Verizon, OBS, Lumen. Um, but you have a very long tail of smaller regional providers that are now getting a lot more of that MPLS business because, like I said, people are maybe going more best-of-breed 
within a region and that sort of thing. And that long tail, which of those providers, again, I know this is probably hard to see, but you know, to give you an example, uh, we've got Telmex uh, in Mexico, KDDI in Japan, Zayo for North America, Windstream, uh, Telstra, and, and uh, Oceania, that sort of thing. That the geography of your network, of course, is going to determine which of these alternative providers you might be using. We asked the same question for DIA, again separately because we, we thought there would probably be different trends. You're not necessarily getting your DIA service from the same provider that you get your MPLS service from, right? So um, most enterprises still do source their DIA from telcos, um, but a, you know, a, a mix of providers is, is definitely a growing category. You see that kind of uh, shifting down over the years. And what I found really interesting here is that um, We've heard a lot of folks talk about, like, oh, I can get um, DIA directly from ISPs and whatnot. We've, we see fairly little of that. Um, it's hard to go directly to ISPs or even aggregators um, uh, because I think partly they want that sort of, like, carrier relationship. Maybe they're still getting some MPLS and some other services, some management, that sort of thing. So they're still um, tending to get DIA from telcos, but that, that uh, mix is kind of shifting towards getting DIA from a variety of providers as well. And again, we asked which particular providers they were using. AT&T, interestingly enough, is still on top. Um, but then you have a little bit of jumping around. Newman is more prominent in the DIA space than they are in MPLS. And you have um, some shifting among those kind of top five providers. OPS drops down a little bit, for example, not being a huge uh, DIA provider. But the thing I think is most interesting about this chart is that the tail of providers is still a long tail, but it's a fatter tail, meaning um, you have a more diverse kind of sourcing strategy among DIA service than you do necessarily for MPLS, which Makes a lot of sense, you know, within, within an MPLS network, it's really advantageous to have a kind of small number of providers providing that private sort of network. Whereas for DIA, if you're just using that to uh, get onto your cloud services or you're managing that with SUN, um, it makes sense to go to a, a more sort of like best provider for that particular site or region or country than it does in MPLS. Again, same thing with uh, with with broadband. So business broadband, and, you know, stop me if, um, if I'm being sort of too pedantic here, but just to be clear that, like, business broadband meaning not consumer service, but but far short of DIA-level service that's, that's symmetrical, unintended, and comes with very great SLAs. This is a big group business broadband for us. It, 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 it could be anything from DSL to fiber to the premises or whatever, but... Um, but we still see that uh, most enterprises are getting that from their carrier, right? So from a telco. Because again, it's just kind of hard to uh, go all around the world in different languages and different regions and source directly from local ISPs. But you see ISPs right up there at, at 45%. So where that is possible, where that is easy, we do see people going in that direction. What we don't see a lot of, again, is, is the sort of aggregator, uh, which I would have thought it would have been growing uh, more than it has been, so we'll see if, if that takes off over the next few years as well. Okay, so all of those underlay trends uh, have been driven really by the adoption of SD-WAN over the past few years, right? So SD-WAN um, was really pretty new in 2018 when we started asking this question. It was only 18% of, of our respondents who had fully adopted SD-WAN in 2018. That has uh, grown uh, to 46% in 2022 when we asked. Um, so really strong growth there. Um, it did kind of fell short of, of where I thought it would be by this time about last year when, when I was running this survey, just because there's been so much push and emphasis on SD-WAN in the industry over the last few years. But I think um, the way that we ask this question, if you can see that it says installed, right? So that means you already have SD-WAN running on your network, right? Um, so I think just COVID and, and some other uh, factors, not really even just COVID, but that it took a lot longer to get SD-WAN ruled out than I think a lot of folks thought that it would. Um, so that, that installed category, I think, is going to grow a lot when I ask this question again. We, we ask this question 
every other year, so I'll ask this uh, in 2024. But you'll see in that pilot or rollout category there, um, you have also a lot of folks that were in that phase in 2022. So 87% of respondents were in some stage of adoption, either already installed or in the, in the process of it. So I think we're going to see a vast majority of enterprises um, in, in the next year or so have SD-WAN actually rolled out. Um, the other interesting thing I think about this graph is that there are 5%, it's a small number, but there's 5% of enterprises that I talk to that don't plan to adopt SD-WAN at all. Um, and and the, it's a sort of um, diverse group. Some of them are those folks that I was talking about that, that act like kind of telcos have put private lines between everything. They just, eh, I don't need that. Others are kind of more like internet first kind of companies and that just works for them and they, they're just using cloud services. They just don't need something really like a WAN in a way. Um, but it is a very small group is the point. So I think SD-WAN will be pretty ubiquitous uh, within the next few years. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, the, the reason that we don't see as many installed as we thought we might at this point was that installations are taking a long time, right? So 70% um, were taking a year or more, right? 50% were taking more than a year, and then uh, about 20% taking a full year. So it just took a lot longer, I think, to, to get SD-WAN actually ruled out than we thought. And yes, question? Uh, if I remember correctly, there were a long, I would say, maybe definitely 2018, but in a few years before or after, there were a lot of like, workers and acquisitions around Having yeah. money or buying a company to adopt a few minutes platform, do you think that caused some delays? It absolutely did. That's a great question. So, the question was uh, in 2018 and in a couple years after that, there were a lot of MA um, activity around SDN providers, and did that cause some of these delays? And I swear I didn't plan these questions because I have a slide about that <laughs> as it happens, right? So yeah, and, and the answer is absolutely yeah. I think that had something to do with it, and we're going to see that in a, in a forthcoming slide. So cool. Um, so uh, why did people choose to uh, to adopt SD-WAN? Improving network performance has been a key reason, right? So, which is interesting because uh, if you think back um, to 2016 through 18, SD-WAN save you tons of money, which can, it can, right? We're gonna talk about that later too. Um, but what was on the mind of WAN managers was really like improving my network performance, right? That, that was the, the, the key factor here. Increasing site capacity, um, and that's very much related, right? So improving network performance is, is certainly related to increasing uh, site capacity. But the, the key one that I wanna highlight from this chart is that improving security was the least cited reason in, in 2018, um, but was growing a, a lot by 2022. And so obviously that has something to do with uh, SASE kind of emerging in what was it, 2019, 2020, uh, and SD-WAN being a sort of crucial component of having a SASE security uh, strategy. So that, that is increasing as a, as a driver. Um, uh, and then if we look at where do folks purchase SD-WAN from, I'm still kind of surprised by our results here for, for 2020 a little bit, but we still see that um, most respondents prefer to buy it directly from an SD-WAN provider. Um, we kind of thought that might be the earlier adopters going directly to the SD-WAN providers rather than getting it from a carrier um, and, and that sort of thing, which we do see uh, getting it from your carrier has fallen uh, each year from 2018 through 2022. Um, I, at first, there was a lot of this, like, hey, you know, get your uh, SD-WAN from the carrier along with your underlay network. But as we saw earlier, your underlay might be now multiple carriers, so you're, you're more inclined to go with either the vendor or you've seen the third-party provider category really grow a lot during that uh, part. And by third-party, we mean, you know, managed services providers, systems integrators, that kind of thing, right? So someone who is not a carrier and not the OEM, but, uh, but someone managing the network, managing the sourcing for you. So that has been interesting to watch here. And um, again, we asked what particular providers um, you were using. Now, again, uh, to focus on this chart, this could be that you're getting your SD-WAN, ultimately you're paying a bill to your carrier, to your MSP, but of course you know who the OEM is, right? Cisco, 
very unsurprisingly, is on top um, uh, with, with Meraki and Vitella both together. But VMware also very popular. Um, what's interesting, I think, here is that um, there's not nearly as long of a tail as there are for network services. Obviously, there are fewer SD-WAN providers out there. Um, but we really do tend to see a lot of deployments from kind of those uh, top five sort of uh, uh, SD-WAN providers, Cisco being two of them, of course. Right? Now, um, what are the reasons that you might select an SD-WAN vendor? So this is where I get to your question here. So price um, has, has been a, a major factor, right? So it, it does matter how much the SD-WAN service costs, of course. Um, but our, our number two factor was uh, fears of M&A activity in 2022. So the, the way that we phrased that question was basically like, do you care if your SD-WAN provider might get bought by another company? It's often not another SD-WAN provider, but uh, just, you know, like VMware, for example. Uh, um, uh, so, so I think that is very much on the minds of enterprises. Like, I want to make sure my SD-WAN provider exists in the format that I bought it in uh, when I use it. Yes, please. Yes, no doubt about it, right? Because if, if I go with Viptela, I know that Viptela is going to be Viptela for time right? And in fact, I don't know if you guys know the story there, but basically Viptela was kind of started by engineers who were at Cisco, weren't loving what Cisco was doing with SD WAN, and so they said, well, we're going to go yeah, do our own thing and sell the back to here, right? Yeah. Um, so, so I think, yeah, cer certainly, um, and, and Rocky was neither born in, in Cisco for that matter. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that um, that definitely the providers that you see on top, in part, are due that there's there's not going to be they're not startups anymore, right? So, Silver Peak, for example, HBU River, right? Um, they're not going to be um, changing, right? So, or or sunsetted, right? There have been uh, some some uh, SDN providers out there who who didn't really um, exist after after their acquisition, right? So nobody wants to save all this effort into that and then have that happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. So to tie this back to the underlay story, right? So we know underlays are changing. I said it had to do with SDN. Let's look at some data that supports that directly. I asked, what do you plan to do with your MPLS service after you adopt SD-WAN? Okay, so in the upshot is there, most of our respondents who were adopting SD-WAN or already had, said they'll keep MPLS, but at a minority of sites, right? So we can't get rid of MPLS entirely, um, but we're gonna minimize our MPLS exposure. And that could mean a lot of different things that we getting rid of it everywhere except for China. That's, that's a, a, a not uncommon sort of uh, thing I've heard, or China plus a few developing markets where just internet service is not good enough and, and, and whatnot. But, um, or it could be, I'm going to keep MPLS at um, a, a lot of sites, but just, you know, my headquarters sites, you know, my sort of uh, 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 tier one kind of sites, but, uh, but not the rest. Only um, little more than one in five, right, um, are going to drop all of their MPLS altogether, right? So that's not a huge group that are saying, we can just go totally internet. Um, and fewer than one in five will keep MPLS as the same before adoption, right? So most folks that have adopted a CMAN or, or are in the process of doing it are not planning um, to, to just keep their same MPLS network, which is, which is the key there, right? Okay, so a little bit of a transition. We also asked about cloud and uh, network as a service kind of stuff in this uh, version of our survey. And the upshot here is something that, again, I hope won't be surprising to anyone, but uh, the vast majority of enterprises are now multi-cloud. Um, so we asked specifically about infrastructure as a service uh, partners, and uh, we found that um, the, the vast majority had two or more uh, which interesting when I first asked this question, I think in 2019, we had quite a few um, in the zero infrastructure as a service category. None in 2022 were in that category anymore. So everyone has at least one supplier, but uh, most have more than that. And again, the particular suppliers we asked about um, Azure, very much on top, kind of not surprising since most of the meetings I have these days. 
are on Teams, which is a pain in the ass. It's right? <laughs> <laughs> what it is, right? Um, uh, AWS, they fell off a little bit, but it's still one of the more prominent providers. Google has been growing a fair bit. Google, um, it seems to me, kind of focused a little bit more sort of the market enterprise, um, but they're, they're trying to get into the larger enterprises now as well. Oracle grew a lot. But what's interesting here is that the, 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 um, those, the tail of the, uh, the hyperscalers um, are, have a lot less market share than just Azure and AWS, right? So uh, Alibaba, if you're in China, or Tencent, if you're familiar with that, for example, um, tend to, to be very kind of regional focused and, and Oracle and IBM have particular applications, but most people are just going to Azure and AWS. How do they connect to them, right? So we asked about um, basically um, all the different ways they could have multiple answers here, of course, but all the different ways that you connect to your hyperscalers. And a dedicated interconnect um, is, is definitely the most popular option. We kind of split that between network service provider and getting from the cloud service provider themselves. Um, so those put together very much the most uh, popular option, but still a lot of IPsec VPN out there, which I find really interesting. Um, and then uh, cloud exchange um, is getting there. I think uh, you know things like Equinix Fabric when I become sort of more and more popular. We're going to talk specifically about NAS in a second here. Um, but then we also asked where your data centers are actually physically located. And um, the upshot, I think, here is that fewer than one in five have all of their data centers on-premises. So that's an unusual setup now. I have heard tell of kind of folks pulling back from moving all of their data center stuff off-premises and, and keeping some things um, you know, back uh, in-house, so to speak. Um, but uh, for the most part, we still see um, mixes of you know, on-premises with neutral facilities, uh, private, uh, public cloud, that kind of thing, right? So most folks have um, some amount of data center, uh, a large amount of data center happening, not on the corporate premises, which again, the, the, the idea of asking that question is say, how does that impact how you, you uh, configure your underlay network and what that means, right? Now, um, uh, network as a service, NAS, right? This is, uh, you have to put it in the context of about a year ago, Right, so um, uh, you know uh, things have changed maybe in, in the last year. I find it really interesting that about a third of respondents, a little more than a third actually, were unfamiliar with with NAS um, a year ago. Right, so and we didn't hyper define it in the survey. We just kind of sort of presented as like you know um, uh, on demand service, um, a different billing than, than a, a long term contract. Um, but even so, uh, we had uh, another third who had heard about it but had not started researching it. Then I had some very enthusiastic respondents that were like, I, you know, I've been using Packet Fabric, Megaport, whatever, for a long time, and it's awesome. I, I can't believe anyone's not doing this. I can just go, you know, into a portal and immediately get, um, you know, data centers connected, that kind of thing. I think probably the killer app for this will be when it's really truly available on an end-to-end -end kind of basis. Very few providers that can truly do that now, and those who can, it's still very ge geographically limited. It's always going to be a little bit geographically limited, right? If you end-to-end -end, like to have bandwidth on demand, you have to have fiber to those premises, and it has to have um, you know equipment that that can get, that can be spun up and, and whatnot on, uh, through through automation portals. And we're, we're, we're certainly not there yet, but that is what a lot of service providers say they're working towards, so we shall see. Okay, so that is where the network is. Let's talk about now what the network costs, right? And to do that, um, first what we have to do, like I said before, telegeography focuses specifically on the global telecom market. So a lot of what we do is, is more for the telecom industry, the, the wholesale industry. But that really is how all of the WAN or sort of like enterprise, corporate kind of prices get constructed in the first place. There is a very strong, it's not always a direct relationship, but uh, of course the foundation for the prices that you would pay for your enterprise networks come from the prices that carriers pay to connect with each other, right? So if we look at um, IP transit prices around the world, um, what you see here is that you know, the wholesale transport prices 
vary a lot around the world. Um, Western Europe and North America, unsurprisingly, are considerably less expensive than other regions. Uh, transit prices are the highest in like the Middle East, North Africa, South Asia, and you'll notice even um, Australia, even as a very developed market, is geographically very isolated, right? It's hard to get there. Um, so it is a lot more expensive as well. Um, MTLS port prices do relate to that, not perfectly, but pretty well, right? Um, so South Asia and Africa can be, uh, you know, pretty substantively more expensive than other markets. What we're looking at here is the, the monthly recurring cost of a 20 meg MPLS port and a 100 meg MPLS port. And then as well, the, the multiple between those two things, right? So of course, as you go up in capacity uh, speed, um, you're gonna get savings on the per bit level. But even that sort of ratio varies a lot by geography. So it's not like carriers just say, okay, uh, there's always going to be a multiple of like 1.5 between this board and that board. Um, the, that relationship definitely varies across different locations. Um, some locations, uh, so we end this chart at Johannesburg. If I included Dubai, for example, it screws up the whole rest of the scale of the chart because Dubai is so freaking expensive, right? So if you happen to have sites in the Middle East um, or a few other places, um, I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is, right? Then, uh, so that was just looking at port prices, so from the provider edge onto the network. Then you have to add in the local access. Now, of course, local access can vary down the street. Even sometimes I've heard of within the same uh, high-rise building, a different floor is a different local access tail price. But on average, um, those, those prices do tend to still vary in predictable ways across different countries, metros, that sort of thing. I find interesting that um, in the U.S. we tend to see that um, very low port prices, but the access prices are actually a little bit higher than we see in Western Europe, for example. We have London and New York here, and you see the local access part of that chart um, is, is more expensive in the New York bit than it is in London. Then there's other markets. Mumbai is the one that really stands out here. Um, it's a very expensive network market. so. And part of that has to do with they have this um, system of, of uh, they've never quite gotten over the half circuits and, and you have to sort of deal with Tata in order to get into the country and things like that. But they have a very competitive local access market. So you can get local access really cheap in India and then you pay for it to port the long haul service. So it's just important to understand that the balance between that end to end service uh, varies a lot by geography. Telegeography. That's what we think about. How, how does your place in space affect all of these things? And uh, I think this is a really key example of that. DAA uh, port prices follow very similar geographic trends. Again, they're not identical, um, but if you're in a, a cheaper MPLS market, it's probably going to be a cheaper uh, DAA market. Again, it sort of depends on the competitive landscape. Sometimes you'll have some providers that only do DAA. They move into that market and they, they sort of um, uh, push the DAA prices down on MPLS prices. Uh, don't have that kind of, um, of forcing. So you'll have some differences, um, but, uh, but again, your unit cost goes down as you go up, but even that sort of um, price metric changes as you go into different parts of the world. And then broadband prices are really interesting. So what we collect for, um, for MPLS and DAA, I should say, we, we ask service providers around the world for their quote prices for competitive bids, basically. For business broadband, we just look at publicly available ISP kind of plans because those are out there. It's not, it's not an uh, opaque market like network services are, right? Um, business broadband tends to be pretty flat around the world. So there's just not a huge difference in, in business broadband prices, there, there are differences and, and they, they certainly are important, um, but they're not nearly as big as the differences uh, as you go to different countries and to markets for MPLS and DIA. And of course, business broadband is super cheap compared to MPLS and DIA. Obviously, that is for some reasons, right? You know what I mean? In terms of the, uh, the, the service level that you're getting, but the, the difference is huge. Um, and just one note about this chart, we're looking at Again, the ISP direct prices. As an enterprise, um, uh, you'll probably not very often pay actually that price because 
you're probably going to get. Um, our, our survey respondents certainly intend to be getting their uh, broadband from a carrier or an MSP who is sourcing them, and they're going to put a, a markup. Standard markup for broadband is really like about 100%. So you see a, a broadband price in South Holland, say, for $50 a month. Uh, your carrier sourcing that for you is going to charge you $100 a month. But that's still going to be a lot less than the MPLS or the DIA in that location, right? So, yeah, the same thing, right? So certainly, so the question was just what about wireless broadband? And again, the, 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 the key thing there is that if you want fixed wireless access as a broadband plan, um, you, you want to consume it like a wireline plan with a monthly recurring cost and a guarantee of at least and up uh, and downstream speed and that sort of thing. But yes, the, the upshot in terms of price is that um, the prices tend to be pretty low locally um, compared to, you know, sort of like like global kind of service like uh, uh, MPLS or VIA. The last five years, we've been 100% solar. Direction. 
but also just general technology changes. So um, you come up with a better uh, transport card, like a pick card, right, that, um, that can get more bits across the same fiber. So as we've gone through Moore's Law on computing, there's been a kind of like Moore's Law of transport. There is a limit. I can get really nerdy about this. There's a Shannon limit on, on uh, fiber. But um, we haven't hit that yet. And, and, and for, for the time being, there's going to be uh, the ability to keep improving how many sort of channels, if you will, we can put over fiber. And so there's going to be always this increase in supply. We know there's an increase in demand too. But thus far, throughout the history of looking at this stuff, which we've been doing for 25 years or so, um, we've seen that the increases in supply are outpacing increases in demand. So all of these prices to push bits around the world keep going down, right? And that, um, of course, is going to get to IP transit as well. And in uh, here, the, the real takeaway from, from this chart is that IP transit prices fall, but they fall at uh, different rates over time, depending on maybe sort of new technologies, depending on um, uh, what, what the supply is in, in those regions. Um, but again, that technology advances and, and other changes are, are constantly kind of pushing those prices down. And that trickles down to the, the enterprise services, land pound prices. These are the caters for MPLS and DIA um, for the, the, the previous three years, so 2020 uh, through 2023 for 100 meg ports. And you see across pretty much all of these markets, Sydney, DIA prices didn't fall for some reason. But um, for the most part, all of these prices fell somewhere between 10 and 15% and a year, usually. Uh, Johannesburg is an example of a market that fell more. That's partly because the prices were really high, so they have more room to fall, and partly because there was some increase in the supply to South Africa, for example. So the upshot here really is to just understand that prices for all of these services almost always going down it's a little bit during the, the height of inflation and shipping again, where carriers were trying to push prices up, um, but they did not really succeed in doing that. All right, so as we wrap things up here, um, I, I just want to go through a few pricing scenarios um, that kind of put all of this uh, in context. We have the changing configuration of the land, um, all of those falling prices and how the prices differ around the world. How does that work with a, a sort of real corporate network, right? So to do that, I, I made this hypothetical land that's 150 sites across key global business centers around the world. And we started with a sort of typical pre-SD-WAN network, a dual MPLS with active active ports. Uh, we have seven data centers um, in APAC, Europe, Latium, and the US. Um, and um, you have an, an average bandwidth that varies by region. So APAC is really high because of a few data centers. Um, and then the more expensive regions have pretty small ports because I knew that they get, in reality, really small ports in those expensive regions. Um, but just to give you a picture, like for MPLS, like 20 megs is the most typical port. Um, uh, we have very, very small ports in some of the, the more expensive regions. And the average bandwidth is 246 megabits per second. That is not really an important number, just to remember that that number sort of changes um, uh, over, over these different scenarios. So the first scenario we do is um, high bandwidth. Um, so we just increase our, our average bandwidth um, for that dual MPLS network um, by about 68%. So the average goes up to 414 megabits. And the TCO, the total cost of ownership, only goes up by about 19%. So you see already there is you know, some uh, unit cost savings in going to larger ports, but you're increasing your capacity in your MPLS network, you're definitely going to pay for it. Um, let's try a, a different scenario. I call this one the conservative tiered sites hypothetical land. Um, I'll go quickly because we're running out of time, but basically this is just says we'll take all of our sites, we'll put them into three tiers, you know, headquarters, um, branch offices, maybe point of sale, something like that. And, um, and give them different parameters, right? So we'll keep MPLS, one will be MPLS DIA, one DIA broadband. We're going to add SUN. We're going to increase our average bandwidth by 64%. So we're going to have a more robust network. And let's compare that to a regular tier. We're, we're a little bit more radical than the conservative tier. Um, so we're going to uh, keep um, MPLS, but uh, get rid of one of those dual MPLS out of DIA, and then go DIA and broadband for the rest, increase our bandwidth by 77%. And 
And the upshot is that our price actually still goes down. So in our first scenario, um, we have uh, increased our bandwidth by 64%. Price goes down about 8%, so it's probably maybe sort of flat. And that is with the testing plan overlay costs um, uh, added on top of that. Um, in the regular tiers, your price goes down 38%. So let's try another one. I talked about point-to-point um, -point services, building backbones between your data centers. Um, even when we do that, we increase our bandwidth a lot because we're going to a mostly internet kind of uh, uh, connectivity strategy. And our price still goes down even with building a backbone around the world, 10G wavelengths between all seven of those data centers. And having a lot of SD-WAN uh, overlay costs now because we have a lot of encrypted throughput in each office. Um, we still have the, the TCO can go down 28%. Um, and then we'll call this one throw bandwidth at the problem. Um, it, but this is unusual, um, but we have had some survey respondents who have gone in this direction. Basically, almost an entirely internet first kind of strategy. They kept some MPLS maybe in some hard markets like China and, and developing markets. Um, but really went with like all the business broadband they could, um, DA where they couldn't get uh, good business broadband, and just massive, massive ports. This um, is actually five times the size in terms of average office capacity. And we see that um, it actually still goes down by 39%. Um, I threw a, a second one in there to have um, a, a uh, premium managed SD-WAN that only adds actually a little bit Cost of the SD cost, and you still have quite a difference in the total cost of ownership. So the upshot there is that um, you know, with all these different configurations, whatever it is that you want to do, rethinking that underlay once you've gone in the SD wind direction um, can really impact what your total cost of ownership is, um, and give you a, a much more robust network, maybe for the same price, but maybe even for for less cost. Okay, so key takeaways and, and any questions you have, just um, you know. On wind configurations, MPLS is declining. Um, everybody knows that, but it's good to see it. Right, bandwidth demand is increasing again. Everybody knows that, but it's good to see it. SD wind adoption uh, continuing to grow, um, and uh, and we've found it really interesting that most S uh, enterprises are still getting SD wind directly from their vendors. Uh, most enterprises are multi cloud. Um, NAS is still very much in the early adopter stage, um, but I think it's something that's really worth watching over the next few years, particularly as actual end-to-end -end offerings really become available. Um, and then for prices, prices can range um, hundreds of percent across geography, so it's really important to understand how that sort of all plays out over, over a multinational network. And it's also important to understand that they fall really, eh, usually 10% at least annually. It can be more depending on what's going on in that region. And then finally, just that um, moving to those hybrid networks, those alternative network configurations, really can't impact the price significantly, let alone all these factors I didn't talk about, like facilitating your move to the cloud and all those kinds of things. Yeah, so that's like drinking from the fire hose, I know. <laughs> Any questions before we wrap up? Yes? I think there's a correlation for like whether being actually managed genders is because they already have relationships with these vendors a lot like Cisco and VMware, right? Palo Alto, either vendors that you might already have other products in your facilities. Yes. You might already have NSAs, but then you can impact more the Yeah, so the question was, um, are, are folks going with some of these SD-WAN vendors because they already are working with those vendors for a lot of other services? And the answer is yes, absolutely. There's no doubt about it. And I think that that is the reason to your earlier question why we saw the M and activity go in the direction that it did, right? Is that a lot of the SD WAN technology was like kind of startup oriented, but they all were doing that with the hope of like, hey, we could make our service match with somebody who is already the OEM for a bunch of other useful network stuff. And frankly, we didn't see it work out for I don't want to name names, but the like the likes of some maybe WAN optimizers and things like that that didn't have that kind of um, sort of like ecosystem already in place. Uh, with the with the enterprise customers. And then also be because like like for us again, we got Grails approach here that we're being names that can sell us that but it had to be their brand and their sit their underlying service. Mm -hmm. That's what we're making. So you had to get that white box, but that was where I had the SD model. 
Yeah, so if, if I repeat the question, it's like, is, is the, the carrier that you're going with and their partnership with the SUM provider also influencing that decision, essentially? Yeah, and the, and the answer there, again, very much, I have, if, if I had all day, I have a slide on that, but I have some other presentations, but we also track what the partnerships are between carriers and, and the, uh, the OEM, SUM providers, right? So, and, and that is really important, right? So, so when, when we look at that list of which SDWM providers are most prominent, it has a lot to do with which one the carriers that are most prominent selected in the last few years of partnership. Yeah, yeah, well, and in your case, for example, like I said, Cradle Point having a sort of global particularly fed also makes it Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And again, so the, the, the comment is basically like, you know, you can evaluate these providers, but then when you're looking at the bundle, that makes a big impact on the decision. Yes. Yeah, so the question was, do we see enterprises appearing with internet exchanges and offloading bandwidth there? And the answer is yes, but it is a small group. They tend to be, they for, for various reasons, they have a pretty sophisticated team. Sometimes they have a team that has come from a backbone provider or an ISP or something like that. And it's just even familiar with that as a concept, right? Um, for, for enterprises to be willing to get their own ASN and, and whatnot is, is a minority, and I think will be a minority, but is, it is growing from a very small number, certainly. Um, and makes a lot of sense, depending on, on what your traffic looks like and, and, and your your geography, again, is, is there Linux that you can get too close and that sort of thing, but I think it's a, a strategy that makes a lot of sense for, for In fact, I, I know a few enterprises that are like, being evangelists for that and, and want to spread that word around, so um, they would be happy to hear you say that question. Yeah, yeah please. And, any speculation for the that <laughs> you surveyed, if they have any idea or could identify an alternative between MPLS transports and the TIA or internet based solution provided to QoS, such as carrier Ethernet? So, your question was can they can they tell the difference in terms of QoS between MPLS and DIA servers? How many could identify carrier Ethernet as a viable transport between DIA and MPLS? Ah, yeah, no, that's, a, that's a great question. I don't have any data on that, but I mean, we certainly. Talk about it, and, and again, carrier Ethernet um, is something that we see a small number of really sophisticated enterprises using for that kind of purpose. But it, it tends to be the ones who are had just more networking experience. You know, it, it depends a lot on your team. Like, do, do you have folks that came from carriers, or, or you know, whatever, like vendors, um, and, and or have have grown up in, in the industry in a different way than sort of like getting to that sort of IT infrastructure manager position from just within IT that, that being within the, the broader telecom market, if that makes sense. Yeah. But again, something that I would tell, because as someone who knows intimately what the prices for all these services around the world are, carrier internet's really cheap. Right? So, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question was with the carriers knowing that MPLS was the cash cow, are, are they building out like additional CEOs and, and things like that to in order to, to get ahead of the trend? Yeah, the carriers have seen the, the writing on the wall for a long time. They know that MPLS use is going down. They know that they're going to have to move to the other services. I think what most of them truthfully are trying to do is something a little bit different than what you asked them. They're, they're trying to get, they're trying to be more uh, uh, like SIs in a way. They're, tr they're trying to, to be more technology companies. But are uh, seeing more of those over subscription like Oh, yeah, on that, well, you know, they, it's, it's hard for them to get away with that, right? So you were asking about um, pushing more over subscription and things like that. I, I think um, it, it's, it's, it's hard for them to get away with that, 
with enterprise customers there. Yeah, I think we're going to have to that one be the last question. Thank you very much, Greg. Thanks for listening. Telegeography Explains the Internet comes from the experts here at Telegeography. It's edited and produced by Jane Miller, and it's hosted by me, Greg Bryan. And I also wrote that theme song you're listening to right now. To learn more about our data, jump over to telegeography.com and we'll see you on the internet.